It's 2040. And while we still don't have hoverboards and a Jaws franchise that extends into double digit sequels, I'm nursing the last of my pint in the pub after the last orders have been called. The bell rings as a landlady shouts out that famous line that has echoed throughout the ages. Time at the bar. I drink up and check my phone for any urgent messages I need to respond to before the blackout. I walk out into the warm late October sun. Right on cue, the power goes down. Nothing will happen now for three hours. Ever since those temperature spikes that resulted in the archaic electric system severely damaging poles and wires, we've endured daily blackouts that bring further disruption to the economy, to society, and to our everyday lives. It brings back memories of the COVID pandemic in 2020. Gosh, was that really 20 years ago? That's mad. Seems like yesterday. As I take a sweaty walk back up the hill to my house, I think about everything. How there were naysayers then, just like there are naysayers now. I feel anger towards our governments, all of them, who have collectively failed time and time again to do anything. My thoughts turn to beers I've known and loved. I think about Citra hops. Ugh, I miss Citra. Some of the new varieties are nice, but they lack the punch that Citra had. It's hard to believe they were wiped out by disease in the early 30s. I arrived back home to find my package hasn't arrived again. It's become a bit hit miss whether things turn up when they say they will. It completely depends on how extreme the weather is at any given moment. And let's face it, these days it's all extreme. I unlock the door and sit in my energylessness house, looking at the photos of my kids on the mantelpiece. Hard to believe they're grown up now. My oldest is 41. 41! That's the same age I was when I recorded that episode of the Hot 4 podcast on sustainability, climate change, and the impact on the brewing industry. I'm Nick Law, and you're listening to the Hot Forward podcast, getting you ahead in the brewing and beer business. With interviews, discussions, stories and advice from a range of brewers and craft beer professionals, the Hot Forward podcast is here to help you and your beer business hot rocket your way to success. Visit our website at hotforward.beer to find out more. Grab yourself a beer as we crack open another fresh episode of the Hot Forward podcast. This dystopian radio drama may seem a little far-fetched to listeners of the Hot Forward podcast at the end of 2023, but maybe that's how the first readers of George Orwell's classic novel 1984 felt back in June 1949. Although Big Brother isn't watching you from a screen on the wall, it could be argued that Meta Inc. is definitely doing it from a screen in your pocket. Warnings about climate change aren't new, as sceptics will tell you. Atmospheric CO2 levels are close to the lowest of the last 600 million years. Arctic sea ice extent is almost identical to this date in 1996. Global SSTs fall by over half a degree Celsius. Climate preachers would you have it believe it's hot enough to boil shrimp? Forest fire burn acreage in the US is down more than 90% since pre-industrial times. Still waiting on the acid rain from the 1980s. 
I'm in my 60s. We had a very cold winter in 1963, a very hot summer in 1975, and a great storm in 1987. I've lived through them all. Since then, nothing much to note. Despite 35 years of global warming, forecasts of more extreme weather don't faze me. You? Well, actually, they do. These are real tweets from real humans. Well, I say real humans. But the science, those pesky scientists with their fucking science, say otherwise. To be honest, I'm inclined to believe them. The scientist, that is. Back in 2006, former presidential candidate Al Gore featured in a movie-length documentary called An Inconvenient Truth, spelling out in no uncertain terms the impact modern commerce and our power-hungry way of life was having on planet Earth. Similar prophets, so to speak, have and continue to bang their drum and shout from the pulpits. Wildlife presenter David Attenborough, activist Greta Thunberg, and organisations such as Just Stop Oil and Greenpeace all preach about the dangers we are rushing headlong into. And yet, our lives go on. Our fridges keep our cans cold. Our AC units keep our cold stores cool. Heating elements warm our hot liquor. Planes carry tons of punchy citra hops from one side of the world to the other, while offloading tons of CO2 into the atmosphere. Our one-trip kegs go from A to B, and then where? We cycle to become another keg? Or shipped off to an illegal rubbish heap in Turkey or India? Our sight, our mind. The problem with climate change is personal, professional and political. It's a hugely complex issue that isn't going to be solved by one person, let alone on one podcast. Yet we all have a duty to play our part in helping Mother Earth heal. It's either that or death by a thousand paper cuts. As this season of the Hot Forward podcast comes to an end, and we'll talk a bit more about that on the next episode, I wanted to choose a topic of discussion that is close to my heart sustainability. Being able to sustain anything for the duration is difficult and sustaining our world before it becomes uninhabitable for us, our children and our children's children should be of the utmost importance for everyone. If we want to collectively keep enjoying beer for decades and centuries to come as our predecessors have, then we've got a duty to make our breweries, bars, bottle shops and businesses as eco-friendly as possible. It's a tall order and a challenge for us all. Will you rise to the challenge today? What will you do in your business to take the first steps to becoming a brewery or beer business that is friendlier to the planet? This week I'm joined by Chris Terry of 86 Carbon who offers carbon literacy training and consultancy for the brewing and hospitality sector. Accredited carbon literacy training leads to an understanding of how climate change will affect individuals in the industry around them. 86 Carbon helps those in the brewing sector acquire the skills and knowledge to lower their carbon footprint by as much as 15% and certification from the Carbon Literacy Project is recognised internationally. 86 Carbon is helping businesses in the brewing and hospitality sector find a pathway to net zero so they can save money, gain customers and protect the planet. However, before we pose Chris our questions on sustainability in the brewing industry, I'm joined by Will and Peter from Charles Farham to talk about sustainability in hop farming.
This week on the Hot Four Podcast, I'm joined by Will and Peter from Charles Farham. Hello. Hi. Hi, Nick. How are you guys this week? Very good. We've just been rubbing and sniffing new selections of pop, so we're we're on a high, if you like. <laughs> now, before we hit record, did you say it was called Aroma Fest? Is that what you called it? We've just done Aroma Fest number one one eight. Aroma Fest, I love it. I'm I'm surprised there's not a brewery out there that's snirtled that title for their beer festival. So, what what does Aroma Fest look like or smell like? I should say. <laughs> oh, it smells good. If you could smell yeah. it, <laughs> yeah. We have a whole number of selections which we've either picked on farm or by hand, and they've been dried. And then we lay them out in plastic bags about a month or so after we've harvested them, let the aroma settle down and go through and rub and sniff. And we try and write some descriptors down and we put a intensity score and a quality score out of 10. And then we keep that as evidence as to what we thought of the particular selection or the variety at the time. And it helps us select which hops to propagate on and grow into plots. Not being washed away with all the rain we've had recently. Almost. That's an absolute perfect segue into what we're going to talk about this week, uh, this technical feature, talk about hops and sustainability. As anyone living in the UK will attest, like the, the weather here recently with some of the storms has been pretty biblical, really. And I'm quite interested with hop farming and sustainability, how that all works and how hop farmers are looking to be more sustainable in producing the hop varieties they do. Interesting you should mention rain in in sustainability. Um, one, One of the interesting things about growing hops in the UK is we've got a maritime climate. This leads to all sorts of problems with fungal diseases. You know, our relative humidity and mild summers and mild winters mean that, that we are, are prone to fungal disease, which historically has been a real bugbear of ours. We've been envious of places like the Yakima Valley that has this arid climate that, that mm. means that the fungal diseases just don't thrive. Whereas now, with climate change, we've got a different set of problems and a different set of assets i suppose so you know in the uk climate change is unlikely to mean that we don't get enough rain i think recent weeks have attested the fact Hmm. that you know we will get enough rain it's more about water management and i think we could certainly do a lot better managing water in the uk but only a couple of our growers actually have irrigation Right. And they irrigate from ponds. So we're not taking water from other ground sources or from human population. We're, we're collecting water and we're using it to distribute it more evenly. And I see that as being something that we would probably be more widespread because whilst we get enough rain, we don't necessarily get it at the right times of year. But when we've got that water, if, if we hold on to it, we will have more than enough water to yeah. take us through. How does through, rain through or too much rain, I should say, affects the hot plants? If the ground's getting waterlogged, like how does that affect the plants? Well, generally speaking, uh, a hop root does not like lying in the wet for more than a couple of weeks. 
but also, generally speaking, hop growing has always traditionally been in the most fertile soils on the farm. By most fertile, I mean well-draining at depth and a good deep soil which is fertile, a soil in good heart. So a good hop soil will have regular additions of manure. It won't be punished with um, compaction like some of the arable soils might be. or We've seen you know, the maize harvesting going on. The best soils are where you want to grow your hops, and they, generally speaking, will be uh, not freely draining, well draining. Right. You want to have enough moisture at depth to feed this hungry plant through the summer. So the, the soils in Herefordshire are generally fairly heavy, so they do hold a lot of water. If the soil lies wet for a long period, there's really two types of root in, in, on a hot plant. So you've got the big feeding roots and you've got very fine little hairy roots that bring in the moisture. And the fine roots will rot off if they're left in water for too long. It, so it affects the vigour of the plant. They can regrow them, mm. but it sort of takes, uh, there's an energy requirement to that. So they really don't like Are there any sitting in water varieties for too long. in particular that are more water hardy? or le less so, or they're all pretty much of a muchness? We don't run that sort of test. Oh, right. <laughs> we try not to grow them under waterlogged conditions, but um, there will certainly be differences between different varieties on their hardiness or their tolerance of lying wet, just the same as there is uh, a different tolerance of drought between different varieties. And that, I notice that a lot growing different varieties in, you know, 374 varieties, I think, last count, uh, in my five-acre nursery. And uh, you can see when it's dry in August, some plots, uh, 10 yards of the same variety, will be uh, going yellow and the leaves are starting to drop off because they're under stress in August. And other ones will be dark green and quite happy. So we have noticed, we are selecting for drought-resistant, but so a lot of the... the the tests that you can do for drought conditions also induce other issues with hops. So if you were to put them in a pot, basically, and starve them of water, we we call them pot-bound, and, and the hops react differently when they're pot-bound to when they're actually in soil. So, so trying to induce those conditions in in soil in, in, a, in a hop field is, is quite difficult unless we've got a roof and... Uh, all sorts of things. We don't have that option, but we do select for all sorts of properties which might give us an indication that they are drought resistant. And this last year, we had some really positive results from Godiva and Harlequin that we're growing in some test plots in Bosbury. And for the last three years, they have given almost exactly the same yield off that that known area, those same plants, not irrigated, and they have suffered with drought and they've suffered with the, the hangover after drought, if you like, and they've produced the same yield in a normal year and in two drought-affected years, which indicates uh, a, a strong resistance to, to, uh, to drought. I know this is going slightly off topic of sustainability, but I'm just quite interested just off the back of what you just said about planting in different areas. So I know hops are typically grown in certain regions in the UK and around the world. You talked about Yakima Valley earlier. 
when it comes to like flavor and aroma, like if you were to plant, because I know this happens with like Cascade, for example, you got USA Cascade and then UK Cascade. Am I right in thinking New Zealand, you can grow Cascade there as well? Yeah. So, and they all taste a bit different. Like if you were to take Citra, for example, and grow it in the UK, would the soil quality affect it? And how does that work if you were to take a UK variety like, I don't know, East Kent Goldings, but grow it up here in Yorkshire or somewhere. Like, how, how does the soil affect the flavour like that? What we know so far is that is that flavours will change depending on the locality, even in different valleys in Germany. That's where a lot of the work's been done before. Mm. Uh, but also, as a rule, if you were given the same 100 plants to select for the region of the world you want to grow the hops in, you would probably choose a different set of favourites to grow. And hop varieties, generally speaking, don't do very well in a country where they weren't selected for growing in the first place. Um, so hops are subject to epigenetics as well. So depending on where you grow them and environmental factors, not just the soil, but also mm. the you know the temperatures of in in spring, etc. So some of the genes within hops can be turned on or off, which makes for a you know, so Cascade was selected in the US, but we can grow it. It grows very well here, but it tends to be milder. Now, is that milder because of our climate or is it milder because some of the genes have been switched on on that variety? It's still genetically the same plant. It's just so it either has the gene or it doesn't, but they might get switched on or off depending mm. on the environment you put them in. And then you look at somewhere like New Zealand, which has extraordinary levels of UV. Um, they've got a, an ozone hole over them, and it's rare that ozone holes are talked about in a positive light. But in the, in growing hops, um, the, the UV really drives the the engine of the, the, the hop, if you like, the lupulin gland, mm. really excites it, and it produces exceptional levels of oil compared right. with even the USA. So they are all comparable, but they have different properties. Pete, how long have you been growing hops for? I'm interested. Um, uh, gosh, no, <laughs> 25, 30 years. Right, a, a, a long time. I, I kind of figured, because this is going to lead into the next question. Over those years, how have you seen the climate and weather conditions change? Because sometimes you might go on Twitter or Facebook or social media, whatever, and you'll see someone's like, I remember when it was right hot in 1974, whatever year it was like really hot, you know. And then you'll get a whole other bunch of people saying, you know, yeah, but the climate's changing. And then people say, oh, it's all a myth and so on. And I'm, I'm just curious as someone that literally has their hands in the soil year in, year out. As you look back over the last several decades, have you noticed the climate changing? How has it changed? I wouldn't go as far as to say that I could detect whether there is a climate change or not. In, in, those, in that time, because I'm not a climate scientist. One has to mm. uh, believe people. You, you believe, you know, that their, their work is, is, is honourable. Um, all I'd say really is um, if you thought last summer was, was miserable, you weren't here in 1988. I was six in 1988, so I remember. We had a fantastic dry spell in 2005, so anybody who had compacted their soil or not put a regular muck dose on or cultivated at the wrong time, their crop suffered 
dreadfully. So the hot cones are half quarter the size of normal. And if there's only powdery mildew about, it took off because powdery mildew is, is a root stress disease. Mm. So it'll, it'll hum along quietly through the season. You might not see it at all. Uh, and then suddenly you get a bit of stress in August, off it goes. The, the scientists are telling us that the climate's changing, and, and I'm, I'm inclined to agree with them. Um, not everything's for the worse. Some, some of it may be an advantage. What we certainly have seen is the reduction in the number of frosts that we have over a winter. Right. And actually, in, in the hot plant, that is quite important. Some varieties need to vernalise, and they need a certain number of cold days over the winter and they they really enjoy a positive switch from winter into spring so a good movement in temperatures by a good five or six degrees that really gives them the switch to to start growing uh, and without these sort of environmental switches if you like the quality of the crop and the volume of the crop suffers you often see on like packs of corn sausages this is the carbon footprint and we've measured it and that's starting to become quite a big thing like you know you see a company like brew dog saying that they're a carbon negative business is that right they're not just carbon neutral it's carbon negative now right like is a carbon footprint something throughout the hop growing sector of the brewing industry is that something that's been measured and how how would you measure that as far as growing and distributing hops are concerned yeah yeah, no, it's it's a good question. Yeah, yes, we're doing a lot of research into it at the moment. We haven't got any any hard numbers for the UK. Um, hop farming in general, that you know, so hops only make up a small part of beer, as you know. I'd like it to be a bigger part, but you know, it's a, it, it, at most it's going to be five percent of your ingredients. And when you're competing with things like malt, which are fairly carbon usage heavy. The, the hops tend to to sort of fall into the the background as being not a significant statistic. However, hops are a perennial plant. They're in the ground for a long time, up to twenty five years, which is very good from a carbon perspective. And we do lots of things around hop farms to try and promote carbon capture. And we're working on some historic farming practices that actually would in, enhance that quite significantly. With the, the race to protect ourselves against verticillium wilt, a disease we've discussed in previous podcasts, we have tried not to move soil around the farm, and we're, we're very nervous about anything that's soil-related. We don't want to spread this disease around. But by now that we've selected varieties that have got good resistance and tolerance to wilt, it may be the time to reintroduce some of these older farming practices, which may help us sequester more carbon still. Mm -hmm. um, there are other things that can be done with hop growing. So there has been a tendency to use artificial nitrogen, which you may have seen in the news shot through the roof price-wise. It, it is it's made from oil effectively and it produces a lot of carbon dioxide farming in general uses massive amounts of it but we know that hops actually respond better to, to natural forms of nitrogen uh, farmyard manure is the the best way of feeding your hops and historically hop farms would have a cattle herd 
not for the profit they got off selling the cattle. It was to feed the hops. Right. And it, it, it paid for itself just by producing the, the, the manure. Sorry, I was going to say it sounds like a really shit job, that, but... <laughs> Oh, we love a good pen, Nick. Come on. <laughs> when you're working out your carbon footprint for things, um, I don't think anybody's designed the um, formula yet to be able to apply things in such a way that it can be useful or even interpretable for us because hop farms in this country anyway tend to be on mixed farms, so you have your cattle and you've got your cider apples next door. I mean, I mean, I don't know whether other crops would include, uh, for instance, the high hedges that are around a hop yard or garden or have, uh, you know, 20-foot high, uh, six-foot, eight-foot wide um, hedges, you know, brimming with life. No, no, we promote biodiversity. We always have done. Uh, so these hedgerows surround every hop yard. We call them yards. In Kent, they call them gardens. But they're there to protect the hops, but they're also, we encourage uh, wildlife and wildflowers. Some of the hop yards that we have up in Herefordshire, we've been planting wildflowers and, and pollinators. Although hops aren't bee pollinated, we are pl- planting pollinators to encourage bees for other other areas of the, the farm, etc. And actually to bring in natural predators to reduce our a reliance on the chemistry Peter was talking about earlier. I guess everyone in not just the brewing industry, but most industries are basically running to catch up now. Uh, that there's become a real acute awareness of climate change. Obviously, it's been talked about for decades. You know, if you think back to An Inconvenient Truth, which was the film that Al Gore did, uh, the presidential candidate in the USA. Even back then, he was going on about it. And we didn't listen, and and it, it's taken, I guess, quite a, a while to catch up. But it, you know, it's it's funny how we collectively often talk about it in the brew, and we'll just take the brewing industry because this is what this podcast is aimed at. How we talk about it often, and and so on and so forth. But then often, when it comes to brewing, it's business as usual, you know, because of the the trying to get the the mash done and get it louder and get the hops in and get cleaned up. And now you got a package and oh, so that delivery needs to go out and all that stuff that's in um, business speak. It's not urgent, but it's important. Yeah, there is an urgency tied to it, but it's not like, oh my goodness, there's a fire in the brewery, get the hose out quick. It, it's important for the future. And if we don't do something about it now, it becomes urgent and important. We've got to keep our eyes open as to you know where we think we're going to be in 20 years' time, 50 years' time, as far as, uh, you know, the climate goes or the varieties go or what the brewers want to buy. To answer your question a bit more that you asked before about sustainability, I think certainly uh, in England we are uh, looking at a more sustainable growing area, if you like. Um, If climate change, or when climate change, I suppose, starts to bite, it's going to be the continental hops, which are going to suffer the most, like it suddenly won't rain in Germany at all for uh, three months. Well, they won't get snow in the Cascades of the US. Yeah. And, and they, quite simply, they will not be able to grow hops if they don't have snowpack on the Cascades. Well, I was going to ask this earlier, like how feasible is it 
for a variety like Citra or Mosaic or Simcoe, like the holy trinity of hops that everyone puts in every single Nipah, like how feasible is it for one of those varieties to go bye-bye forever as a result of climate change? I'm very. Uh, well, and, and if a disease mutates, such as it gets around a, a resistance gene or mutates such that the plant can't cope anymore, that variety will disappear because it will be ungrowable. Countless varieties have disappeared for, for, for these reasons in the past. The fungal diseases that affect hops mutate at such an incredible rate that varieties that previously thought to be a little bit tolerant or resistant can be completely wiped out. Such is the problem that if you're growing a variety that becomes susceptible next to a resistant variety, you risk introducing such levels of that disease that you may affect the, the resistant or tolerant variety, or worse still, it may give it the opportunity to mutate around that resistance gene in, in the resistant variety. So we have to have a zero tolerance mentality about the, the susceptibility to these diseases. Uh, the chemistry will not protect us if those resistances are broken down. So yes, if something like citra, which is quite a sensitive plant, were to become more sensitive, it almost certainly would be pulled out in a very short space of time. Yeah, wow. You heard it for your first brewers, get brewing with something else. Put something else in your neepers. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for being on the podcast again this week. If people want to find out more about Charles Farrow, or even continue this discussion or got any questions surrounding sustainability and your hop farming practices, how can they do that? Email me, will at charlesfarrow.co.uk and uh, I can answer most, if not all, of your questions. Uh, and if but if I can't answer you, then I will discuss it with Peter. Peter doesn't actually have a Charles Farron email address. We don't like to let him communicate too much. <laughs> well, this has been a special privilege, Peter, to have you on the podcast as well. And the BHA has a website as well, so there's quite a lot of information on there about our growing conditions and the varieties and things. Yeah. Thanks, Will and Peter. Stay tuned to the Hot 4 podcast for our conversation with Chris Terry from 86 Carbon. We'll be right back after this short message from our sponsors. The Hot 4 podcast is proudly brought to you by Charles Farham. Charles Farham have been sellers of hops since 1865 and hop growers for even longer. They stock nitrogen flushed leaf hops, T90s and T45 pellets. And to ensure their hops remain in optimum condition, they have state-of-the-art cold stores at their sites in Worcestershire and Yakima in the USA. At charlesfarram.com, brewers can shop by pay-as-you-go or using agreed credit terms for yeast, malt, fruit purees and other brewing products. In addition to leading hop varieties from across the world, the Farrams family range brings you Archer, Emperor, Godiva, Harlequin, Jester, Most. Mystic, Olicana and Opus from their hop development programme right here in the UK. If you'd like more information or expert advice, visit the Brewers Resource and FAQ pages on the website or contact their technical advisors for different uses, applications and recipes. They're always really happy to help. Visit charlesfarram.com today. That's charlesfarram.com. 
This week on the Hot Four podcast, I'm joined by Chris Terry, freelance researcher and consultant to the brewing and hospitality industry with his business 86 Carbon. Hello, Chris. Hi, Nick. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. How are you today? Yeah, steady away. Um, still a little bit uh, sleep deprived. Uh, no. We did arrive with our first child not too long ago, um, but I've got I've got some nice strong black coffee and uh, looking forward to having a chat. So, That's yeah. exactly what you need. As we were discussing before we hit record, kind of hits you, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. And I, I I like to think a bit of I take it hour by hour, and some of the hours are very long and very loud, and some of the hours are you know a little bit more chilled, and you just get to enjoy <laughs> uh, enjoy the experience. But it's 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 a journey. And yeah. it's, it's, it's a fantastic one. Yeah. So today we're looking at sustainability in the brewing industry. I know it's quite a hot topic that gets talked about quite a lot, but it kind of feels sometimes a little bit like people don't actually do anything about it. We, we like to discuss it, but the reality of people actually doing anything sometimes seems a bit diminished. So can you just tell us a bit more about what it is you do when working in the brewing and hospitality industry when it comes to carbon emissions and sustainability mm. so i think um a bit of scene setting my uh, yeah my background's in hospitality and brewing i uh i've worked all over the world running bars and restaurants um and then i was in business development for craft brewing and i worked with ebria trade and north brewing for a time and around sort of 2019 2020 i was starting to having lots of conversations like this actually of we know we should do something about the, the environment. We know we should take some action. We really want to take some action because we know that prices are going up. We're seeing reports on the news about hottest years on record every year and nothing seems to be getting any better. So we, we, we want to do something, but we don't know where to go. We don't know where to start. We don't know what the tools are available. And also we haven't got the time and the money to pay people to to do this for us so what do we do and i i took that as a little bit of a call to action to go back to university and do a master's in sustainability and find out what some of the tools and resources available were mm. bring them back to the brewing and hospitality industry and say here we go here's some stuff we can collaborate on here's some stuff we can work together with here's some stuff that's happening in other sectors and other companies are doing and let's take it forward so that we're not fretting about this and we're actually doing something with it and now i offer a, a, a bunch of different things i i offer some accredited carbon literacy training which takes brewers and uh, their team through the science of climate change and we talk about some of the actions that can be taken by individuals as well as by organizations and at the end everyone sets a pledge that says i'm going to reduce my carbon footprint as much as i can and these are the actions that i'm going to take and they also get a a, a certificate from the carbon literacy project as well which is um based in manchester and they have international recognition for the work that they're doing getting people understanding what carbon emissions are and why it's important to take action on those things and then i also support breweries with things like life cycle assessments of their products and their beers i can do carbon footprinting of organizations and baseline what they're doing right now and we can start to identify hot spots in their operations to reduce their footprint it could be in waste it could be in on-site renewable energy generation it could be a, a really hot topic this year carbon capture from fermentation i don't think we were even talking about it i haven't even heard about it this time last year and now we're seeing a huge rise in people that are getting involved in that. So yeah, a bunch of different things. I, I research reports, chatting to people like yourself, just just getting them the message out and keeping conversations going. Really, let's start with the training and literacy that you offer because it's an interesting point that how I, I often bang on 
on this podcast and in conversations about education. And maybe that's because my wife's teacher, so it's kind of like in some ways part of the education system. My kids are at school, she's at school working. We talk a lot about people being educated. This podcast exists because it's there to educate brewers and beer professionals when it comes to running a business or to do with anything brewing related. But I guess if you don't have the language or even some of the basic understandings of reducing emissions, what certain things mean when it comes to sustainability, that must be quite a challenge in and of itself for brewers to then make the pivotal first step. Because I know it's like if you do a brewery tour, for example, like, you know, you, you, you really most of the time preaching to people that know nothing about brewing apart from there's always one person isn't there who's all like how many grams per litre of dry hop do you add and do you add it during active fermentation it's normally me actually who's like that at the tours but like you know you're normally talking to people who know nothing so how, how do you get them from zero to taking those first steps yeah um i think training is a really good way to go and that's a really good way of talking about it of on, on brewery tours of you're speaking to people that maybe understand uh the brewing process and then you try and avoid any real jargonistic uh terminology just to keep everyone in the room to, to be honest on the brewery tours i'm the, I'm the one that asking what do you do with that packaging where does that go do you recycle that what about that malt sack where does that go um and uh yeah so the carbon literacy training exists to offer training to get learners up to a common parlance about carbon emissions and greenhouse gas emissions because terms like net zero and offsetting and greenwashing and the un sustainable development goals are all just jargony terms that get thrown around very uh, quite a lot at high level meetings without actually understanding the impacts of rising sea levels and biodiversity loss and the change in weather conditions and disruptive supply chains there's a there's a big disconnect between this target of reaching net zero and the actions that need to be taken and why they need to be taken and also we need to talk about mitigation as well of these risks aren't going away we're, we're gonna see the risk of floods and we're gonna see the risk of disruptive supply chains increase over the next 20 30 50 years and beyond and if we want our brewers to be around in that time as well they're going to have to be resilient to those as well take carbon dioxide for example we've had a couple of years of prices surging and supplies being more difficult to come by ammonia plants shutting down so businesses need to create a resilience around that of having carbon dioxide either themselves or having a reliable route to accessing that so they can keep brewing the beer that they need Mm. um so Carbon literacy training exists in a number of different sectors. There's courses for if you're a museum, if you're in the automotive industry, if you're a sports club, you can go and get a carbon literacy training package that takes you and your learners through how carbon um, and how how climate change is going to affect your industry and your organisation, puts it all in to context for you and then as a group as a as a peer as a peer-to-peer group you discuss some of the actions that could be taken and mm. it's a fantastic resource and um yeah we, we we've got the one for brewing and it was really exciting over the summer to see robertson's brewery in stockport delivered training in-house for their team and so became the first brewery and pub chain to get this carbon literacy off the ground in, in internally um and 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 they speak really highly of it so going full dystopian future then how will climate change affect the brewing industry looking 
forward into, I don't know, the next decade. What's the reality that awaits brewers and publicans? Try to stay optimistic about some of the things <laughs> uh, in this in this role. But yeah, there there really is over the over the summer we had a, we had another hot summer this this year, and I saw it framed of we we need to stop thinking this is this going to be the hottest summer on record. We need to start thinking of this is going to be one of the coolest summers we ever get to experience. It's going to be, you know, we're not going to have to worry about uh, heat stroke. We're not going to have to worry about that that increased health demands. We're going to be able to have comfortable times out in the park in the sun. In a few years' time, we're going to have scorching hot weather in this country and in the rest of the world. And that means disrupted supply chains. That means that means biodiversity loss. That mean more a greater pest and disease on crops and and ingredients. We're gonna see more disrupted weather patterns that are gonna uh, be more flooding. And for for a brewery that's trying to run its business with a with a just in time fresh ingredients arriving, you know you you need to have the ingredients arriving on that day. Planning for that and scheduling for that when that's all disrupted is going to become more and more difficult. I guess it's very easy as a brewer in the day in, day out to forget about all the little bits of infrastructure that make up the whole because you're so focused on getting mashed in and making sure that your day goes according to plan. Because it's it's that first bit really, isn't it, when you're mashing in like that, or at least I found working in a brewery, that knocks out the rest of the day if that doesn't happen on time so let's say a heating element dies you know and then it's like oh crap okay i've got to wait now for me water to come back up the temperature or get a new element or whatever like if in the uk and us and first world countries we don't really experience blackouts when it comes to power but having worked with the brewery in nigeria before they they regularly have them and it happens in like Africa, like these periods of the day where they just don't have power. So they've got to have a generator. But it's like if the weather becomes like so hot that it's knocking out the power grid, for example, that's going to be hugely disruptive. Or as another brewing example, and I remember it so clearly because I'm, I'm brewing this Friday and I'm got a, um, it's going through my hop selection. And I noticed I've got some Bobek and I don't really brew that often with Bobek anymore. But I used to use it all the time at Sheffield Brewery Company. And there was one year where it was a really terrible yield. Just, it was like 2% alpha acid or something. It smelled really grassy. And normally it's not very high alpha acid anyway, Bobek, but it just, it didn't have the nice fresh green quality that Bobek tended to have. And if we start getting years where the hops get scorched or, or on the opposite extreme, you know, they suffer from wilt because of the moist weather, and the, the, the wet, then it's just really going to throw everything out. And if you think about all these different small bits of, we'll call it infrastructure, that make up the whole, because it's an agricultural product, then, and I tend, my glass tends to be half empty and sometimes completely empty, <laughs> like it's not going to bode well. And I personally think this is the reality that we need to grapple with when it comes to well, everything really, <laughs> but particularly for brewers, this to this, thinking about the future, we're, we're already battling a cost of living crisis and the impacts of Brexit and people not spending anything and going down the pub. This will just be another absolutely major thing to contend with, like a tsunami. You know, we, we think, oh no, we've, we've had it bad with these like waves, but then there's this like tsunami coming. 
Am, am I just being really George Orwell, or is, or is that kind of like, am I on the money? Like, help me, help me out. <laughs> it, as a without getting too politicized about it, um, if we all get behind a scheme or we get behind uh, a technology or an initiative and we get the right funding in place for it and we develop the tools that are needed to deliver it, I think we've got a chance of avoiding some of these big, big problems that we're going to face. Some of the things we can't fix, we can't fix as individuals, we can't fix as one brewery. We can do something within our own sphere of influence. We can um, we can focus on local deliveries and making sure that everyone in our community is really supported. And, and there's some fantastic breweries out there that are really honing in on their local community and, and delivering to that. We can make sure that our team are well looked after and that any climate change mitigation that happens to our team are, is, is taken care of for in the future. So we can look after our own sphere of influence, but we can't deal with these big planetary problems. We can't mm. suddenly fix ocean pollution. We can't fix biodiversity loss just by ourselves, but we can take action within our sphere of influence. And then as, as an industry, if we all get behind something and we we get the right lobbying in place and we, we start talking about the right things, I think we can get behind some technology or some initiatives that might make a bit of a difference mm. um, and maybe inspire some other people, some other sectors to do the same as well. Yeah. I mean, it's a hugely complex problem, isn't it, when you think about it? Because my wife used to work for, and we're going back several decades now, for a charity called People and Planet. And she always says, basically, like the government has to mandate the change because there are other governments around the world. If you look at someone like Brazil, where they're just cutting down rainforests, basically to plant crops to create feed for cattle because we like eating meat in the West. And I'm not knocking... I mean, I, I eat meat, not excessively, but I still eat meat, so I'd be hypocritical to lamb blast anyone that eats meat on account of that. Like, we all have to do our bit, but ultimately it's going to come down to the government and, like say, lobbying... The government for an organization like CIBA, for example, to actually make those changes. So I guess moving on, because we, we, we could sit here and look at the impending wave coming or a little bit like those films in the 90s, like Armageddon, you know, with the asteroid. There was like there, about three or four of them came out at the same time, like an asteroid heading to Earth, you know, like, oh, what are we going to do? Rather than staying at the asteroid waiting for deep impacts. What strategies then have you found the most effective in helping brewers reduce their carbon footprint? Like what can we actually do? I, the, the first step is recognizing it and, right. and recognizing that um, the, 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 the asteroid is coming. And uh, the film that came out over the summer, I think it was, or maybe earlier in the year was don't look up Leonardo DiCaprio and Jennifer Lawrence. Oh, and, what is there another one? Uh, yeah, this was just this year. And then right. there's an asteroid hurtling towards earth and all the client, all the scientists to say, we need to, we need to do something about this, and all the politics and media are just fixated on the latest, latest celebrity gossip or the financial gains of not taking any action and not to give away the ending or anything, but um, the, the the message is, you know, look up, look at what's happening, look at what your individual impact is, look at what you can do within your sphere of influence to take action. I'm pretty sure um, I heard Jennifer Lawrence once say she was the first female action hero, <laughs> so I'm sure it'll be fine. <laughs> it's a true story. Go go YouTube it. She's like claims that with Katniss Everdeen, like, yeah, there, there weren't any like female like role models and action heroes before Katniss Everdeen and me in this film. It's like, 
pretty sure that's not uh, true. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, sorry. <laughs> She's she's far from an action hero in that film. She's yeah, she's uh, fights with science rather than fists. Um, yeah, to, recognizing the impact, recognizing the actions that can be taken, measuring that, and, and setting a baseline in place, and then identifying those hotspots. Is it packaging? Can we improve the packaging that we're putting our beer in? Is it our our fleet of delivery vehicles? Could we start to look at electric trials in our area? Could we get some on-site renewable energy generation? Because the payback on those schemes, the return on investment is 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 rapid um, mm. th- these days uh, with the cost of th- those things. Or is it? Do we need to look at our, our supply chains and our, our complete value chain? Can we can we stop focusing on international export? Can we actually focus on our, our local community and delivering to the to, to to pubs and bars in our area and, and really hone in on that? So every brewer is going to be a little bit different because every brewer is geographically at a different location. Every brewer has got different energy requirements. I worked with a brewery that, was, that wasn't able to get a, um, a three-phase power supply to them. So therefore, mm. they had to use a diesel generator to get the, the liquor up to temperature. And, and so each brewery has got its own challenges and each brewery needs to be thinking about these things in a different way. So that's why I come into it with the carbon literacy training, understanding the complete picture of why it's necessary to take action. And then the next thing we do is we do a baseline of carbon emissions and greenhouse gas emissions as business as usual. And then we start to break that down and say, right, we could we could look at this and it will have payback of two to five years. And then we can look at this and it will have payback of 10 years. But right now we could just change all the light bulbs in the brewery and we'll be saving within six months and little tiny things as well as the big picture things of, you know, CapEx expenditure five, 10 years in the future. So how can breweries effectively integrate renewable energy sources to power their operations like, and, and reduce the reliance on non-renewable energy? Maybe, maybe start with those little wins you talked about and then how do they fund the bigger ones? Because I would imagine there were some breweries, I get a whole variety of breweries list to this and there'll be some breweries list to this who maybe already have solar panels and there'll be some brewers just thinking, I don't know where I'm going to get my next meal from of my next paycheck, let alone pay for renewable energy, which is more expensive than non-renewable energy and solar panels. So like maybe just go through some of the smaller wins and then how can they fund some of those bigger ones to be able to sell energy back to the grid even if you're if you're a brewery in a railway arch i completely understand that solar panels are probably probably out of the question for you but um green tariffs green energy tariffs have really come down in price and are are, are fully accessible the next time that your contract is uh is coming up you know it might it might cost to switch right now but kind of plan that in as, as when your energy contract comes up for renewal look at a green energy tariff because with your baselining and you're looking at your carbon footprint that basically means that you can claim zero emissions from the energy that you're buying if you're if you're buying it from renewable energy source you you can have a power purchase agreement in place so you know exactly which wind farm your energy is coming from as well and i think the big thing to get out there is that there is funding and support available it could be from um a local authority or local council there's green finance from banks specifically designed to support these initiatives and these technologies to, to give you a bridging loan, to get the get the solar panels, get the renewable energy installed, to get 
better insulation on your tanks. This support is out there and fully accessible. It's just a case of accessing it through your local authority or through your bank. It's money that's there to be used specifically for this. Typically, how long does it take then if you apply for a grant to get hold, not, well, not just get hold of the money, but actually how long does it take to go through that process and do the hard yards? Because I haven't applied for many grants myself, but having worked with people that have applied for grants it's just like doing a triathlon isn't it mm. <laughs> with all the hurdles and lakes you've got to swim through etc yeah there's a lot of um let's call it bureaucratic red tape and and forms to fill in and eligibility checks and things to do but that just uh, to me that is making sure the money's going to the right place and being used mm. in the right way <laughs> Without getting political again, that's that's such a, a a sad reality. Sometimes is that money doesn't go to the people that need it. It's it's um, it's it's buying duck houses and and moats and anyway. Um, so it, it, I I think some of these things can be very quick and painless, but yeah, other things can take a, a year, maybe maybe more. But you're investing in your future, and this is time spent making things better for your business, for the planet, for your team, for your communities. And uh, I, I, I tell people, triathlons can be fun. And <laughs> <laughs> keep going. <laughs> what about some of the little ways then, other than swapping light bulbs out, what are some of the other like, realistic things that brewers can do, or those working in hospitality, just to bring the carbon emissions down and which energy they consume and because everyone's a winner like when when you reduce your energy levels right it's not just a case of like you're helping to save the planet you're helping to save your business because you're not spending as much yeah i think talk to your supply chain talk to your suppliers say does all of this plastic is all this plastic necessary is there a different way that we can package these ingredients up can you deliver these to me in a different way if you're if you're in hospitality start to look at food waste if you're not already this it's and and people are going to be banging on about this more and more going forward is look at the the food that you're throwing away can you reduce that or or find a better waste stream for it if it's and and where's that waste coming from is it coming from peelings and prep uh, in in the kitchen and can you be more efficient in the way that you're preparing meals is it coming from plate waste are you serving too big a portion size uh, and therefore throwing away the burger bun and half the plate of chips or is it coming from somewhere else is, is the inventory um, and stock control not efficient enough and you're throwing away a lot of out-of-date food you know there's the environmental impacts of growing that food transporting that food preparing that food is going down the drain it's also the financial cost of all of that as well is, is you're just throwing money into the bin with all of that so mm-hmm. Talk to your suppliers, look at an improvement in that supply chain of things, and then look at your waste streams as well. Silo Restaurant in London, originally in Brighton, the way they approached setting up their restaurant was to say, what would happen if we didn't have a bin? What would happen if we weren't the end point, the end destination for the things that we buy? What if we were just another link in the circle of recycling or just not creating and generating this resource in the first place? So they take things like they take the glass bottles for the glass wine bottles, they grind them down and they make crockery and plates out of them on site. They their food waste is 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 basically nil. And anything they do have to waste goes into an anaerobic digester mm. to generate energy. And they they're based in Hackney now in in, uh, in in East London. And they've got breweries nearby as well. So they're able to give their spent grains into that anaerobic digester as well and generate energy from it. Yeah, work with the supply chain and also work with your neighbours as well. Um, speak to who else is on the industrial estate who are your other neighbours in the railway arches next door Uh, what what circularity 
can you work out together? Two things off the back of that. Firstly, I worked in a business that didn't have commercial bins and it was a nightmare, but it did force you to think about what you were going to do with it. And it wasn't a huge period because I was like, this makes no sense. Why do we not have a bin? And then there was an hour long conversation, which resulted with <laughs> one of the owners being like, why are we talking about a fucking bin? And I was like, because you don't own a bin. <laughs> That's why we're talking about a bin. But it made us think about, okay, that's plastic. So that will get recycled in someone's bin or recycling bin at home. You know, it made, it did force us into that kind of mindset. Secondly, I think one of the other things that anyone listening to this who runs a business or manages one can do is set time aside to work on your business. And I know it's such a cliche to say that, but it's something that, all of us who own or run businesses often don't do. And thinking through how climate change and sustainability is going to impact your business, for most people isn't at the top of their everyday agenda because they're, they're battling this, that, and the other and firefighting any problems that come up or trying to just keep the business afloat or trying to even fulfill their own dreams and aspirations rather than like sitting down and spend, you know, spending an hour, like go, going for a coffee somewhere that's not the office or in the brewery, just getting out with your notepad and thinking, right, how are we going to tackle this? Like, what are we going to do? And doing like a, a spider diagram or whatever, however people want to do all that. That's kind of how I work. But having that time to really focus on working on your business and working on it, I think is really important so that everything like you've just said about working with your neighbours and so on, you start to come up with those solutions that you can then bring back and you think, right, I need to have that conversation with that supplier and I need to do that with that thing that sat there. Or we could use those old kegs. For, we'll come on to old kegs in a minute. We could use those old kegs as like planters, you know, which is what we did when I was at Shepherd Brewery Company. We got some of the old um, eco kegs, like the outer shells, and we grew hops in them and had them growing up our, our wall of our tap room yard. Yeah, I've, I've seen, I was, I was speaking to a brewery that send all their keystones and shibes to be broken down and turned to pub furniture. Oh, really? Um, <laughs> yeah, this, the, the, the help and support is out there. And yeah, it, it does take some time and energy to find them and access them. But hopefully they're becoming more prevalent and more accessible and more economically viable as well uh, to do some of these things. They're not just for the select people that have the time and energy to go out and do these things they're just available to everyone take sending spent grains uh, to farmers that's that seems like something that every brewer is able to access because every farmer needs cattle feed because they don't want to tear down the rainforest let's let's so spent grains are just an accessible easy option to send to farmers mm. but yeah to go back to to to, to, to that of, of sustainable development is making sure that we have the resources available to operate in the same way as we do now in the future and making sure that future generations are able to operate the way that we do now and benefit from the same wonderful variety of, of resources and ingredients that we are able to access now making sure that all of those are available in the future as well and if we've, we've got something now that's jeopardizing that um, and putting some of that 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 future availability at risk either by pollution or by over extraction of, of resources slow down let's look for something else let's look for a different resource that we, we can use in that place or reduce it and, and use it in moderation 
Tim Berners-Lee talks about a uh, a 10-ton diet a ten, annually of using 10 tons of carbon as an individual. And that's a, uh, that, that's a quite a lot compared to some countries per capita. Um, but in the UK and the Western world, if we all got our individual carbon footprint down to 10 tons a year, um, we'd be making such a massive difference to global climate change risks. Yep. And that means looking at uh, everything from flights and uh, diets and uh, travel and stuff um, and saying, OK, I'm going to keep eating meat, but I'm going to buy an electric car or I'm not going to be able to uh, go on a long haul flight this year. But, uh, you know, if I go vegan one day a week, I will be able to go on a on a, on a long haul flight. And, yep. and just those little trade-offs that we make as individuals, as organisations, can make a really big difference. So what are the key metrics that breweries and hospitality businesses should focus on? Like, how do we measure this? Because I've seen, for example, on a pack of corn sausages, like it said something about um, what the carbon footprint metric was you know this this bag has x amount of carbon footprint whatever whatever number it is you know that they, they register it by and i was looking at it thinking well how are they measuring that is that measured by the production is that measured by it going to the local supermarket does that include the supermarket freezing it in their freezers and if so like how long do they freeze it for like are they looking at the best before they, you know, there's a whole, it's very, as we've discussed and people probably alluded to so far, it's a very, very complex issue, but how, how do we measure all that? And so what, what metric can breweries and hospitality businesses use to, as a, as a realistic number to think, okay, we're making progress or actually we're lagging behind in this. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it is a real challenge for consumers and for if you're coming into this fresh to understand what all those numbers and all those jargon terms means. And that going back to carbon literacy is is taking people through what all of that means and what that, that number on the pack of sausages actually means. Um, and, and what and, and maybe going as deep as what calculation has been uh, done to to understand those sausages. But there are frameworks and there are tools in place that make sure that the the way that the carbon footprint of those sausages is the, is the same set of calculations and the same set of emission factors that are used to calculate the pint of beer or the solar panel or the, the tin of beans uh, is, is the same metric that's being used for all of them so that we can compare kilogram for kilogram different food, different ingredients, and a lot of work's going on behind the scenes to make sure that all of those numbers are the same. And now, in the last 18 months, we've had advertising regulations that make sure that companies don't overstate their environmental claims and make sure that the things they're putting out are fair and equitable with other claims that are being made by other companies as well. So we've seen a lot less carbon neutral claims going out. We've seen a lot less greenwashing in the last, uh, in, in more recent times as people have reined in some of those claims to give it a fair playing field of, we're all trying to do our bit. Let's not claim that we're doing any more than we are though. Um, let's 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 all come at this together collaboratively. Um, and in the past week, the the, the we, we've we've had this wonderful thing from Unilever of releasing all the patents for their ice cream and how they keep the environmental impacts of their ice cream low. Um, and we're starting to see that in brewers as well. We're seeing Gypsy Hill publish their data of how they get the carbon footprint of their beer 
low. And I, I hope that we this, this is the start of a trend of people publishing their data and their work so that we can all benefit from it. Yeah, definitely. You mentioned greenwashing there, and I know greenwashing is a, a, another term that's quite similar. Can you just explain what those mean to our listeners? Yeah, so greenwashing is just is it, it, just that is overstating claims um, and, and environmental impacts. The example I like to, to draw on is Ryanair, um, who claimed that all of their ground operations are carbon neutral uh, in, a, in a big glossy magazine in the back of the seats, um, claiming carbon neutrality of all their ground operations. But they don't mention any of the flying that they do and the, the carbon emissions from that. And um, that's, in essence, is greenwashing because it's a big splashy claim that's being made. Um, and uh, it attracts some attention, but it's not necessarily giving the full picture. And the advertising regulations that have come in in the last 18 months have just said, make sure these claims are verifiable, make sure these claims are clear, and they actually state what you're doing. And so hopefully that's we'll see a reduction in the amount of greenwashing that we see. And you mentioned greenwashing as well. That's something that's, that we've started to see as well, is companies aren't talking about what they're doing and they aren't sharing their progress because they're worried about being accused of greenwashing and they're keeping it quiet and keeping it to themselves. And so we're not seeing this wonderful progress that's being made. There's a national uh, food... Um, there's a, there's a national caterer um, who has uh, applied carbon footprints to every single one of their meals and every single one of the ingredients they buy, but they kept it quiet for so long because they were worried about being accused of greenwashing in their actions right. they were taking. Um, and so both greenwashing and greenhushing are impacting how much we're able to talk about these things and how much companies are talking about these um, these impacts in different ways. Yeah. The, the thing with bug greenwashing is it's a distraction technique. It's don't look at this. It's look at what we're doing with our with our forest planting scheme. Don't, don't worry about those flights in the air. Look at our ground operations. If you're just open and honest and transparent about the actions that you are taking, and if you take a leaf out of, say, Marks and Spencer's or any of the big food companies uh, that publish their impact reports every year, so Marks and Spencer's is a, is a great example. They've got their plan A framework. They've, they've looked at everything in their business that they can and said, right, we'll set ourselves a target to reduce the environmental impact of that by reducing the number of hangers uh, that we have for our clothes, reducing the amount of packaging in our, in our food. If you, if, you, if, you, if you take a baseline of your business and then you look at all of those things and say, how can I reduce each one of those things in a different way? And then say, you know what? I can't, I can't figure out what to do with my keystones and shives. And then that's what you put on social media and say, we've done lots. We've identified, we've, we're getting solar panels in. We're looking at carbon capture from fermentation. But we can't, what do we do with our keystones and shives? We can't recycle them. And then that's when the conversation comes about the company popping up and saying, well, we could recycle them and turn them into pub furniture. Or if you if you say we can't we can't get rid of this packaging, we can't get rid of this shrink wrap in our bottles, and then you have a bottle manufacturer coming along and saying, well, we don't shrink wrap our bottles at all. So you know, let's have a conversation. Um, and if you just add that uh, environmental impact into your conversations of saying we need we need we need the the right price, we need the right consistency, we need the right quality, but we also need the right sustainability metrics to meet our targets then those conversations become a lot more productive uh, in, in from, a, from a sustainability point of view. Yeah. And then, yeah, the, the social media conversation comes about, we're working on it. We're not there. We're not claiming to be all the way there. No one is all the way there. This is a constant journey that we're all on. And some things can't, we can't do ourselves. Can anyone help us with this? Yeah. I guess it comes back to what you said earlier about talking to your suppliers, because as 
Paul Weller put it in one of the songs by The Jam, the public gets what the public wants. And as brewers, or if you work in a bottle shop or a bar, pub, wherever, if you're speaking to your suppliers, and we all speak to our suppliers, just like customers might speak to us, well, what are you doing to be more sustainable? You know, or what about this type of packaging? Or even things like labels on cans. Like, I'm not against labels on cans at all, but I'm aware that they're not as easy to recycle as when they're not there. So, I mean, I'm, I'm speaking to myself more than anything. Maybe, and this is, this is where I possibly need to take my first step, is when I when I do my cans, not that I'm doing big runs at all, but maybe I just need to put on my label, please peel this off before recycling. I've never seen that ever on a can mm. of craft beer. If we all talk to one another in that way, it's we're all holding each other accountable in a healthy way. I guess that's what it comes down to, mm. being accountable in a healthy way where we're not accusing people, we're just having the discussion and off the back of those discussions, we can put some healthy objectives in place rather than just pointing the finger and being all like, you're not doing anything and this world's going to part and Greta Thunberg's going to come get you and so on. Yeah, there's there's a time and a place for those actions and those finger pointing and it's to people that are the ineffective leadership um, that, that, that Disney pointing to and... But for the people that are genuinely concerned about this and genuinely taking action, let's support it. Let's not challenge it. Let's mm. let's all go in the same direction because we have to. We have to work together on this. So I mentioned kegs a little bit previously, and this is a topic of conversation that seems to crop up again and again. What would your ideal solution be to the keg scenario? Because there's always this talk about metal kegs versus one-trip plastic kegs and how, yeah, metal kegs are great because you can rewash them, but then there's the emissions of several trips. There's obviously the CO2 output it makes to create those metal kegs in the first place. But on the other hand, you've got plastic kegs, light and durable, but they can be recycled-ish. No, maybe not. It depends on your local recycler. And again, there's these murky claims about what is and isn't recycled. And... I'm just wondering what your thoughts on kegs are. In my personal opinion, this backed up by the, the studies that I've looked at, um, is that the returnable stainless steel kegs and casks win every time. They can be used 80 to 100 times across their lifetime. Yes, there is additional emissions and uh, environmental impacts in creating them, but it's much the same as electric cars. There is a there's a big output right at the beginning, but after 20,000 miles, the electric car will win out over any second-hand petrol car. Um, so isolating everything else and just looking at environmental impacts yeah reusable stainless steel kegs um they're not practical for every single solution and this is why you have to take a a, a wider more holistic view of some of these things export for example you're going to need a one-way keg certain situations are going to require those one-way kegs but from a, an environmental standpoint and just looking at that in isolation yeah stainless steel reusable kegs yeah do you ever envisage a time where Maybe a one-trip keg will exist that's made from like a plant-based plastic rather than like MDPE or HPE. absolutely, yeah. We you know the plant-based and bioplastics um, are becoming more common, and, and um, I my all my all, all the coffee uh, that we get now from either from uh, Northstar and, and Darkwoods, which are two local coffee roasters, all of their bags are now 
compostable or biodegradable either at home or sends it to the right industrial process and it can be broken down and used used again so yeah these bioplastics and plant-based materials are coming in and it's fantastic to see but we have to get the money behind it we have to get behind the initiative and work on it together and improve the market for it to bring the cost of it down for everyone how can brewers engage with their local communities to enhance sustainability efforts and and foster positive relationships with them when it comes to sustainability like what what initiatives can breweries do to make their drinkers more aware yeah so we've talked a lot about environmental impacts and the the e of esg um but there is there is there is an s and uh, the the social uh, aspects of sustainability there is a there are people in people planet and profit we have to think about how we we treat people both our team our suppliers our, our wider supply chain of who our suppliers are buying off and making sure that they're not engaged in anything like human trafficking or modern slavery and things like that but yeah in our local communities there's i, I don't know how long the phrase has been around of shop locally but think globally if you get the community on side with you they're going to help you out because one of them is going to have a great idea for something that you could do for your environmental sustainability and just bringing people all together is 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 what we're in the business about this is hospitality it's about bringing people together and hosting people so if you've got your community on side they're going to come with you on this possibly difficult journey uh, towards greater environmental sustainability. And that could be making sure that your beer uh, is available in all the local pubs and that you're brewing a beer that everyone wants to drink. You know, you've got Brian who loves his mild, making sure that he's always got a, a, a mild available to him because no one else can get one to him from further afield. Um, you could take a leaf out of, say, Stroud uh, Brewery, who have a fantastic events and community space, and they have an art gallery in their brewery. And so there's something there, not just for people that drink the beer, it's also a wonderful community asset uh, Mm. that that the people of Stroud can access as well. There's uh, so many schemes that you can get involved with in your local community. It could be food banks, it could be food drives, it could be hosting blood banks drives um yeah lots lots and lots of things that you could do with the community yeah just before we round up i'm interested in looking a little bit at technology and innovation i know bill gates wrote a book called how to avoid a climate disaster where his argument and thrust throughout the book basically is we need to be investing in new technologies to avoid a climate disaster so what emerging technologies or innovations do you see as particularly promising for reducing carbon emissions in the brewing sector? And how can breweries stay up to date on the latest advancements in sustainable technology? I, th- I think the big, really exciting one at the moment is carbon capture from fermentation. The the technology from Dalham in Scandinavia and from Earthy Labs coming over from the US um, and another kit has just been bought in by SSV as well of this this byproduct of fermentation that i don't think anyone's really given much thought to previously it's certainly not in a lot of the carbon footprints um that that, that breweries are putting out but it is a it is a real byproduct and and a, and a set of carbon emissions that we've just not accounted for previously and now we're t- starting to take note of that capturing that carbon dioxide and then we can use it for bottling and packaging or we can sell it on to other people that are able to use it in soft drinks or abattoirs and I, yeah i think it's a wonderful bit of kit uh, that uh, that i think is well worth any brewery having a look at um and considering for their their brewery because the kit isn't that invasive um uh from a from like a 
bit of kit footprint in your in your brew house. I understand they're quite easy to set up and run as well. Um, and the return on investment is is quite rapid. Yeah. Because you're no longer having to buy carbon dioxide from outside. I think the cost of entry has been quite a barrier to some people. However, and I suppose this is a little pitch for a, a, a one of the sponsors of the Hot Raw podcast, uh, Finnincarsi Rentals. That if you go back, I can't remember what episode it is. Just anyone listen to this, maybe just go back and scan over the last 20 episodes or so. I'm pretty sure it's in there. But Nikazi Rentals rent out those Dallum machines and we talked about it on the podcast. And actually, that's a really good way of being able to capture and use and, like say, resell some of that CO2. I think that the, the, the reselling on is a bit more enshrined in red tape than at the moment, at least, than hopefully it will be in the future. Hopefully it'll get easier. But in, in terms of recapturing and using it in your own brew house, you know, definitely. Um, mm. it's it, I mean, it's there. It's naturally created, isn't it? It just comes, kind of feels like a wet... Whenever I see a my blow-off tube in my bucket of peroxidic acid and the CO2's escaping in there bubbling, I mean, it's satisfying to watch in here and I know that fermentation is happening, but I'm always thinking, oh, I could use that to, like, purge my kegs. Obviously, I can't because yeah. it's, it's, not, it's not filtered and stuff. But I guess the other thing, I guess, um, just to throw one in myself, is um, get a spunding valve. Like if you've got pressurized tanks, like, and you want to carbonate your beer, like spund it and, you know, as it, as it reaches terminal gravity, just like set the spunding valve up and let it naturally carbonate your beer rather than like force injecting it with CO2 that you're buying. Hmm. Are, there, yeah. are there any other ways you can think of at the moment? <laughs> There's some fantastic regenerative agriculture uh, stuff going on. The Maltsters, um, Muntons up in Bridlington are really investing in that. And uh, they've got a, a, a facility up there that's completely powered by um, biochar. I mean, yeah, one of the great success stories of regenerative agriculture is Gypsy Hill uh, producing the carbon negative beer without using offsets uh, because of the um, the wild farm barley that they use. Mm. I guess last question... I normally ask like where do you see the brewing industry heading or where do you see the world heading? But we've we've kind of, we've kind of looked at that Orwellian future that awaits us if we don't act now. So I, I guess I want to end on a high. Like who, who are some of the breweries out there at the moment? Like you see, obviously you re- referenced Gypsy Hill, but who are some of the breweries out there at the moment that are doing this really well? Everyone I speak to is working on something in their own right, and they're really getting something um, that that another brewery next door maybe isn't. So some some breweries have really focused in on recycling and making sure that all of their waste uh, goes in, into a circular economy scheme or uh, is is recycled in the right way. Other breweries have looked straight into this carbon capture uh, from fermentation. Other breweries have looked at offsetting. And if we bring everyone to the table, I think we could have some really fantastic conversations between them of saying, we've all got the pieces of the jigsaw puzzle. Let's put it all together. And I think we could come up with a really great picture of things. So we could take Stroud's uh, community endeavours. We can take Gypsy Hill's regenerative agricultural approach. We've got uh, Wiper and True and Arbor who've invested in this carbon capture technology. 
Black Isle, who've been working with organic um, ingredients for, for a number of years. Yeah, the known low brewers like Drop Bear and Small Beer and Big Drop uh, that have pursued uh, B Corp certification um, and recognising that they can uh, measure their environmental and social impacts uh, within the brewery. They're really setting a fantastic example of what is achievable if you start training for that triathlon. Great. Well, it's been absolutely fantastic to have you on the show, Chris. I'd love for you just to round up what's the biggest one takeaway that a brewery or hospitality venue lists to this you think in your opinion should take away and then let people know how they can get in touch with you for carbon audit or to for consultancy yeah um well i mean yeah first of all thanks for having us nick it's been um a fantastic conversation and um yeah really enlightening uh to, to to discuss all this and as a takeaway just look at something today and look at look around your brew house and say i've always wanted to tackle that issue i've always wanted to tackle that waste stream that we're creating i want to tackle those general waste bins that we fill up twice a week what can we do better there and, and then pick up the phone to your waste service provider and have a conversation because they're more than likely have a solution that they might be able to offer you. And it might even work out financially viable to, to take some, some more of those actions today. We are hosting a open carbon literacy training um, at Robinson's Brewery on the 4th of December. And this is part of an international campaign to get as many people trained up on carbon literacy um, in one day um, that the Carbon Literacy Project do every year. So it's Carbon Literacy Action Day 2023. So if you're in brewing or hospitality, um, get in touch with us. Um, the website is 86 dash carbon.co.uk um and uh, get in touch and, and we'll get you booked onto that um and get some of your team trained up on carbon literacy you can also find all my contact details in there we can have a chat about sustainability audits and life cycle assessments and uh impact reports and all sorts of things as well um, brilliant thanks for being on the show chris thanks nick it's been a pleasure well it's that time again at the bar for another week of the hot four podcast don't forget to subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify and all other good platforms. Be sure to visit hotforward.beer to find out how we can help you get ahead in the brewing and beer business. Remember to follow us on social media at Hot Forward Beers and for another week. Cheers. <laughs>